Acts 27. We've taken a little break from our Christianity 101, and um, we've just been looking at storms that God brings into our lives and trouble that happens and what we can learn from that and how we can grow through it. And this morning, I want to speak to you on how to make it through the storm, and then, Lord willing, next week, how to make it to shore. So this morning, from this text, we're going to be in this text for the next two weeks, Lord willing. And So this morning, how to make it through the storm. How many of you have ever been in a storm? And I mean a life storm, where it just seems like everything is coming against you. That's what happens in this text. So the Apostle Paul has made a commitment to go and preach the gospel to the people in Rome. But the only way he can get there is as a prisoner. So he is arrested and he's taken aboard a ship to be taken to Rome by a centurion and a whole company of soldiers. The apostle Luke is with him and records it. That's how we have it. So why don't we start in verse 1 and we're going to read through the first portion of this chapter. Look at verse 1. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy... They delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. And entering into a ship of Adamidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself. Isn't it interesting? Paul was the kind of prisoner that the centurion felt comfortable that he could let him go. Then look at what it says. And the next day, let's look at verse 4. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and we and put us and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Sinaitis, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmone. And hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh unto a, the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous because of the fast, because the fast was already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain Phoenice and there to winter, which is in haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south, west, and northwest. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence they sailed close by Crete. But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. And when the ship was caught, we could not bear up into the wind we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. When they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strake sail, and so were driven. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we learned some things from this text that the Apostle Paul experienced while he was going to preach the gospel. So, Father, help us in our lives to learn some things from this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's interesting. You can get saved and not live for the Lord and have pretty much everything go well. But then you make a commitment to serve God and you say, Lord, I'm going to give you my life and you take it and do with it what you will. As soon as you start trying to serve God, all of a sudden this trouble comes into your life. We were advised when we brought discipleship into the church, get ready. Because as soon as you start discipleship, you're going to have trouble in your church because Satan does not want people learning and teaching the Word of God. Because think about it. If Grace Baptist Church had one teacher, Jim Alter, we could only influence the limited number of people that would be under the sound of my voice. But if we have 80, 100, 200 teachers, just think about how, expon- how that changes the effect exponentially. And the Word is being spoken and preached and taught in so many different places at so many different times to people that might not ever step foot into Grace Baptist Church, into the walls of this building. But it seems like as soon as we start to want to serve God, trouble comes. So the Apostle Paul makes it his commitment to go and preach the gospel in Rome. And remember, Rome's the capital of the world at that time. Rome's the capital of the world. We, ha- we would have a hard time comprehending a place that would be more powerful than Rome. I suppose Washington, D.C. would probably be the closest thing we would have to it. But the United States isn't an empire. They were an empire. And they controlled by the sword basically the entire globe. And so the Apostle Paul wanted to go and preach to the emperor. He wanted to go and preach to all of those in the capital city of Rome. So he's getting ready to go. And I want us to learn some things from this. That when you start to do something for God, you're going to find the winds are against you. The winds are against you. Now, there are so many times. When we want to accomplish something, and it seems like you just can't get it done. Uh, we're, we're trying to get our house done. And it's just interesting. You try to get one room finished, and it seems like there's always something slowing you down from finishing that one room. It's so funny. You know, we bought our house over on Riverside Drive, I guess it's 14, 15 years ago now. And, man, for three months I worked on that house. Remodeled it made it just right. But I finally got to a point where I didn't want to do any more. So then we had to sell it when we decided to sell it, had to get ready to sell. I had to finish the stuff that I hadn't finished from 13 years before. Any of you have projects like that in your house? Maybe a switch that you never tightened down or a piece of trim that you never painted or whatever it was. It seems like when you're trying to get a job done, there's always something that's coming against you to stop you from getting it done. Now, let me just tell you something. That's called life. Right? That's not Satan fighting against us. That is just life. That's where we are. But I promise you this. If you want to start serving God, Satan has established an entire world system to be against you when you try to serve God. And we're going to be talking about some of that this morning. But I want you to see, first of all, what kind of winds that the Apostle Paul was facing and what kind of winds that we're going to face. That we're going to face. And, and, but before I do that, let me just say this. Winds can be helpful. They can be helpful. You know, it's fun when, when you're flying somewhere and the wind's behind you and you get there a lot faster. That's fantastic. If you've ever been on a long transatlantic flight, 
and, you know, it's supposed to be an eight-hour flight, and you're able to get it done in six and a half hours because the wind's blowing faster. That's the kind of effect that it can have. But it can also do the other way. If you're going against the wind, it's just going to take you longer to get where you're going. And the simple fact of the matter is ministry is not easy because we have an entire world system against us in the ministry. You know, sometimes people can get this idea that if I just start serving God my life, everything in my life will be better. Well, I promise you it will all turn out better. It will all end up better. But sometimes it's just going to be a hard, slogging fight to get to the end. That's the way it's going to be sometimes. And that's what the Apostle Paul is experiencing here. But the first kind of wind that I want you to see, if you look in verse 4, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. Because the winds were contrary. So there are contrary winds. What are the winds that are being spoken of here? Well, the Apostle Paul is trying to go west, and the wind is coming against them, so that's the wind that's coming from the east. And it's very interesting that winds can bring judgment. East winds are used in the Bible... 20 times, and every time there's an east wind, it's bringing judgment. That's interesting, isn't it? Every time an east wind is called, it's bringing judgment. Keep your place in Acts 27. Look at the book of Exodus, chapter 10. Exodus, chapter 10. Look at verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, so Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 10, look at verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought, and what? East wind upon the land all that day, And all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. Twenty times the Bible mentions east wind, and every time it's God bringing some kind kind of judgment. Now, obviously, God wasn't bringing this judgment. This, This wind that the Apostle Paul is facing is not the judgment of God, because God wanted the Apostle Paul to make it to Rome to preach the gospel. We know that, because look at what the Bible says in Acts 23. Look at verse 11. Acts 23 and verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, look at what it says, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So God told him, you're going to do this. And isn't it wonderful that you are indestructible until you finish what God wants you to finish? So here, what I believe is that Satan himself is stirring up the winds and the seas to keep the man of God from getting to his appointed purpose. It's very important that you see that's what's going to be happening here. And all of us, when we start trying to serve God, there's a system in this world that is against what we're trying to accomplish. So winds can bring judgment. East winds, 20 times in the Bible. Bring judgment. But what I like about this is winds can also bring us to Christ. Winds can draw us to Christ. Now, is there anybody here, you don't have to give your testimony, you don't even have to say anything, but it was trouble in your life 
that made you aware that you needed Jesus. Any of you here, you like that? Yeah. So many people. That's exactly what happened. So keep your place and put your ribbon here in Acts 27. Go to Mark chapter 4. Last week, we looked at what Jesus did in a storm on the sea, and this is a different example. Mark chapter 4, let's start reading verse 35. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. Now, I like that. Jesus said, Let us. See, in in last week's story, Jesus sent them, and he went up into the mountain to pray. Here Jesus is in the boat with them, all right? And the same day when even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. Now, I believe that this here, that this situation here, is the same type of a situation. I think Satan was trying to kill Jesus in the boat. That's how bad this storm became. In verse 38, so look at verse 37 again, there was a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. Now you understand, as long as the boat's in the water, you're okay. When the water is in the boat, then you're in trouble. How many of you recognize that math, right? And so now they're in big trouble. Verse 38, And he was speaking of Jesus. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? So in the Hebrew, or that's, you know, that they're speaking in the Hebrew, it's, Dude, what's up? What in the world is going on? All this is going on. We're going to die and you're sleeping. That's what they're saying to Jesus. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Now, first of all, I want you to see a couple of things about Jesus. Number one, he was tired. He was tired. He took on flesh like you and me. Physically, he could get tired. Isn't that an interesting thing? Secondly, he wasn't worried. Do you think Jesus knew that the storm was going to come? How many think Jesus knew the storm was going to come? Right? Was he really worried about it? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? (laughs) When you're in trouble, when you feel like the whole world is against you, remember what the verse says, let us get into the ship. Whatever trouble you're in, He is in that trouble with you. And do you think He's worried? He's not worried at all. We might be scared to death. There'll be times I'm driving through something. And my wife is scared to death. Mainly because I'm driving. She said, there's a nut loose behind the wheel. That's what's wrong with the car. There's a nut loose behind the wheel. And here's what I... I know exactly what I'm doing in that situation. She might have been reading or whatever. She looks up and it's... uh, And I say, it's okay. I've got this. How many of you have ever been in that exact same situation? Right? It's all right. I've got this. Now, the simple fact is, if you've ever seen me drive, there's a good chance that, you know... Because those new 90-mile-an-hour speed limits, they just help you get through some of these things quickly. They're really not. You guys don't do that. Okay. So anyway, here's Jesus in the boat with them, 
And they're freaking out. And he says, I've got this. He wasn't even awake. That's how feared, that's how feared he was. So now look at what it says. Verse 38. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? So what did that storm do? What did that do? Here you have trained fishermen, trained sailors, who have gone beyond their capacity to meet the need. Their human solutions, their human capacity is exhausted. So what do they do? They finally go and find Jesus. So what can storms do? What can wind do? It can draw us to Jesus Christ. The wind caused them to seek Him out. And then look at what it says. Verse 39, And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, how about that? Jesus got up and yelled at the water. I think that not only was he yelling at the water, I think he was diminishing the demonic activity that was coming against his men. Peace, be still. Uh, uh, Someone said this, Yes, Satan exists. There, There is a devil, but he's God's devil. You never have to worry about the power of Satan versus the power of God. There is no comparison. There is no comparison. All Jesus has to do is command, and it happens. And that's what Jesus did right here. So the wind and the storm drew them to Jesus or pushed them to Jesus. Verse 39, And He arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was what kind of calm? A great calm. i got to tell you, when Jesus says something, the world reacts. I wonder why I don't. You know, there are so many things that Jesus has told us to do and to be. How many think that we ought to respond the way that the sea did? You see, we can learn so much from the storms, from the wind. Verse 40. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have, what's it say? No faith. Jesus didn't say that you have, Why is it that your faith is diminished? Why isn't your faith strong enough? Is that what he asked them? Why don't you have any faith? Jesus says, I'm here. I'm in the boat. I made the world. I made the tree that the boat was made of. I made the water. I made the sea. I made the winds. I made it all. Why do you have no faith? Do you know that I've been there so many times where you get into trouble and I start relying on my flesh and I get fearful or angry or resentful or bitter? And God says, why do you have no faith? I'm right here with you. Do you think I can't handle this? I think it was Corey Ten Boom who said, we use Jesus as our spare tire instead of our steering wheel. We call on Him when we're in trouble, when all else has failed, and yet He wants to guide us and direct us. Then look at what it says. Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly, wouldn't you? And said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
So not only did the storm teach them something, I'm sorry, not only did the storm draw them to Jesus, but the storm taught them something new about Jesus. And I can tell you this, that when I've been through life storms, when struggle has come into my life, when trouble has come into my life, I can promise you this, I learn more about my Lord. I learn more about Him. And those storms, they can be helpful. They can draw you to Jesus. They can teach you more about Jesus. But you know what the storms also ought to do? They ought to cause you to fear God more. Look at what it says. Verse 41, And they feared exceedingly. Do you know I think that sometimes we are just too flippant about who God is. We are just too flippant about Jesus. I remember my dad. So I was born in, you ready for this? 1963. It's a day older than baseball, isn't it? So I was, I was born in 1963. So I was really, in my early years, I grew up in the Jesus people era. How many of you remember that stuff, right? And so my dad was a pastor. And I can remember him saying this often because there was this, this saying among the Jesus people. They'd call Jesus the old man upstairs or the man upstairs. Man, that would make my dad mad. Now, I'm glad. Let me just say this. During that Jesus people movement, there are a lot of people that came that, that were saved. Isn't that a blessing? And yet, that idea of Jesus being your buddy, you know, kind of a diminishing of the authority and, and just the majesty of God, that wasn't good. That wasn't good. Do you know what our troubles ought to do? It ought to make us recognize that we have a God that's in control of everything and can control everything. Do you know what that ought to cause us to do? That ought to cause us to fear God. But be very thankful that He is our God. Praise the Lord for that. that the, the storms, they, they can be helpful. They can bring judgment. They can bring us to Jesus. But let's go back to Acts 27. I want you to see something else. The winds can, not only are they tough and contrary, but look at what it says in verse 7. And when we had sailed slowly many days, those winds can slow you down. Those winds can slow you down. I'll give you an example. So especially in ministry, they can slow you down. So when I came to Grace Baptist 20 years ago, um, I was 33 years old, and I had grown up in a preacher's home. I had been to two different Bible colleges. I had been a member of the largest church in the world. I had seen ministry done to, to a level that really few would attain to. Those were the churches that I was involved in. Now, one of them ended up being kind of a cult. But the, the true matter is, when I came here, I knew that we were going to be a mega church within about five years. Why? Jim Alter's here. I know a lot less about pastoring now than I did 20 years ago. You know what I mean? I came in here and I just knew that because of the methods that I had learned because of all of the systems that I had learned, that I was going to come with all that church growth expertise that I had gained, and we were just going to turn Sydney upside down for the Lord. And you know what I found? That in this community, that the work is going to be slow. It's going to be slow. So now, you know, we'll have somewhere between 200 and 250 people here on a Sunday, which for Shelby County, that's a strong evangelical church. That's a strong Bible-preaching church. Amen? But people aren't flocking here. How did you do it? Right? 
It's not happening. There's not, come here, Jim Alter, church growth expert. Man, I could have written a book, Honey, I Shrunk the Church. <laughs> you know? No one is coming here to try and make, say, this is how it's done. Why? Because sometimes you have an established force in a community that is against the gospel. And that's what we've experienced. But do you know what happens? When you keep doing what God wants you to do, God will bless. God will bless. And He has. And can I tell you the benefit of that? This is so cool. If all of my expertise, which I never really had, but I thought I had. How many of you know what I mean? Right? If all of that had worked, here's the sad thing. I would say, look what I did. Because of what God has done here at Grace Baptist Church, all we can say is look at what God has done. Because it is God that's doing it here at Grace Baptist. It is such an amazing blessing for that. Because of that. And so what we have to recognize is that when we decide to do ministry, we have an entire world system that is against us. And ministry can be hard and it can be slow because the winds are against us. But you know that God never called us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. And that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He said, however long it takes, I am going to get there. So the winds can slow us down. But not only can the wind slow us down, but the wind can make it hard. Look at verse 7 again. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Sinaitis, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmoni. And look, at, and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens. Now look, the ministry can be hard. And in this text, it can, be the, it can be saying that it was really hard for us to sail that way or we barely made it. It could be either one of those. And either one of those could describe where we are. Sometimes it feels like I can barely make it in ministry or it is so hard to continue. But I can tell you this, don't give up. Don't give up because God has a plan and a purpose for you. And even though we have an entire world system that makes it hard, we can keep going. So there are contrary winds. We've said that winds can be helpful. They can bring judgment. They can draw us to Jesus. They can slow us down. And they can make life hard. But here's the wind that I want you to see, and then we'll, we'll be done. Not only are there these, these contrary winds, but there are deceitful winds. Look at verse 13. And when the south wind blew, what's it say? What's that next word? Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Deceitful winds. Everybody look up here at me for a second. When you make a bad decision, Satan will confirm it for you. When you make a bad decision, this system, this world system that Satan has established... He will confirm it for you. Now, let me be very clear on something. Satan probably doesn't know who we are. Satan's not omniscient. Did you know that Satan doesn't know everything? How many of you know that Satan doesn't know everything? Isn't that good? So, you know, sometimes we say, well, Satan's really fighting me today. Ah, he's probably got bigger fish to fry. Right? Remember when they tried to cast the demons out, the disciples? And they said, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but who are you? I heard a preacher years ago say, does Satan know your name? 
Does Satan know? Have you done enough for the cause of Christ to make Satan aware of you? Man, that's kind of a humbling question, isn't it? And yet, he has established this whole system so that when you decide to serve God, he's going to come against you. And when you make a bad decision, then he'll open that door for you. How about this? Well, we just prayed that if God doesn't want us to go, he'll close that door. Well, no, maybe God wants you to make the right decision. How many of you ever walked through an open door to find out it wasn't what God wanted you to do? Any of you ever do that? See, when you, those are deceitful winds. That south wind, it came and it blew softly. It's kind of like in the garden, hath God said. You know, Satan didn't come and say, hey, if you eat this, this, the fruit and Adam eats this fruit, then all the evil and destruction that ever comes into the world will result. That's not what he said. Hath God said, you shall not surely die. Soft winds, deceitful winds. And look at what happens. Verse 13 again. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Now, let's say something really quickly. We think because something is easy, it is from God. But what had God said through His man? Look at verse 9. Now, when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already past. Paul admonished them, and he said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. These deceitful winds confirmed the bad decision, even though the man of God had told him what to do. But here's what happens. All right, so they make this bad decision based on the deceitful winds that are blowing softly. And immediately after they get on their course, look at what happens. Verse 14. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. And when the ship was, what's that next word? Caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. You make your bad decision. And the next thing you know, you're caught by Satan, by that whole system, and your life gets caught in this spiral, and you're out of control. And you're saying, how in the world did I get in this situation? Because you didn't listen to the Word of God, you didn't listen to the preaching of the Word of God, and you went the easy way. Because here's what we say, surely the Christian life can't be this hard. Well, yeah, it is, because the whole world system is against the Christian life. And knowledge is power. When we understand the truth of that, it is so powerful. I want you to see this, and you might want to write this cross-reference down next to caught, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26. And that is the right reference. I read it instead of quoted it, so you're not messing up your Bible now. Look at, uh, let's look at it. Keep your place in Acts 27. Look at 2 Timothy 2. So remember that Timothy is a pastoral epistle. It's Paul writing to Timothy, teaching him how to be a good preacher, good minister. And he says this. So verse 23, 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, 
knowing that they do gender strifes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. In meekness, instructing those that, look at it, so interesting, oppose themselves. They oppose themselves. It's interesting. There is an entire, everybody look at me for a second. I can tell that you're making notes and fantastic. Please keep doing that. But I really want to, I want to, really connect with you on this. This message is not about this, but it's such an important part of it. We have in the United States this new rising underclass of people that they, they oppose uh, cultural norms like men and women. They oppose cultural norms of beauty. They oppose cultural norms of cleanliness. They oppose cultural norms of speech. And so they, they, they speak in vulgar and vile ways. They mark their bodies in vulgar and vile ways. They, they, they live a lifestyle. Talk to, your, talk to the employers around here. It is so difficult to hire people who aren't on drugs. There's a, there's a serious drug epidemic that's going on in our community. And, you, and what's interesting is, for the most part, you can look at people and know the direction they're going by their, by their clothing, by their hairstyles, by their... They're putting on a uniform of this rising underclass. Now, how many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Right? Now, the flip side of it is Christians who become pharisaical and all they care about are those external issues. You're not going to get a person saved by talking about the way they look. They need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they're doing is they are developing in themselves an inability to succeed in life because companies won't hire them. They won't hire them. They're they're unemployable. And so what do you end up with? You end up with this underclass that's constantly seeking to just be able to live, to just be able to make it. It's horrible for them. And what are they doing? They're opposing themselves. Does that make sense? It, It feels like every decision they make is going to limit them from succeeding. How many of you have heard of white privilege? Have you heard of this discussion about white privilege? Now, Ben Shapiro can say some things that that it's not good, but he said this, and it's very good. He said, I don't believe in white privilege. I believe in marriage privilege. Because if a child is born into a married family, mother and father in the home who raises the child, there's a very small percentage that that child will be in poverty black or white, whatever race, very, very little possibility that child will be in poverty. If that child's born into a single mother home, it's almost guaranteed they'll be in poverty, whether they're white or black. It's not a racial thing. It's a marriage thing. So here's what happens. We have a culture that says have sex anytime you want to. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Don't let the man keep you down. Don't, don't, you're going to have people, they, they, we have this entire culture 
that mocks holiness, that mocks God's institutions, that mocks marriage, that mocks right and wrong. And kids, you need to understand, these are the people you're going to school with. And they seem cool. And you know what? They might honestly be wonderful people. I'm serious. Nice, kind, wonderful people who are opposing themselves. This whole single uh, parent situation, that is part of that rising underclass. And it's destroying people's lives. It's destroying their lives. What's happened? How did they end up there? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And this is something I really want you to get. Look up here at me. You can't help their life by changing the way they dress or the way that they eat or the way that they bathe, the way that they speak. You can't affect their lives that way. What will affect their lives is you give them the truth of who Jesus Christ is and how much He loves them and how much you love them because of Christ And when that truth, the truth of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection, it gets into their mind so that they can believe it, then their heart can receive it. Folks, we must be able to persuade people that Jesus Christ loves them. And then when they come here, we have to love them. Right? Then look at what it says. In meekness, verse 25 again, instructing those that oppose themselves. Did you see that in meekness? Well, you got to dress like that. Well, you got to look like that. Well, you got to behave like that. Is that meekness? No. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Now, that repentance, kids, let me tell you what that repentance is. It's really important that you get this. It's to change your mind is to say, I used to think this way, now I think this way. The way I was thinking was leading me to hell. I need to change that. I need to repent and then, with my will, choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. All right? Repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Look at verse 26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Let me tell you something. Satan hates beauty. Satan hates godliness. Satan hates cleanliness and purity and holiness. Satan hates it. And so he captures people into a snare of filthiness and degradation and immorality that destroys their minds, it destroys their bodies, and it destroys their souls, and they end up in a Christless, eternal hell. And we as believers have to understand that there's an entire culture that is against Christ and against godliness. And that means we have to be holy. You can't affect the world by becoming worldly. 
You can only affect the world by in a godly way representing the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they look at you, they see a difference. These people are caught. Go back to Acts 27. Verse 13, And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurachlodon. And when the ship was caught, we could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. Now, how to make it through the storm. What the Apostle Paul did was he had told them the truth. So what Satan does is he confirms the bad decision, and then you're caught in the snare. And let me tell you something. Christian kids right here, you saved kids. You can be caught in Satan's snare too in your lifestyle. You can't lose your salvation if you're saved. But you can get caught up. Girls, you can get caught up in this single mother situation, and you end up living in poverty and raising your children Listen, if you're a single mom here, we love you. Please don't think I'm preaching against you. I would never do that for my life. I would never criticize you. You've got one of the hardest jobs that there could possibly be. I'm trying to protect these girls from that. And it's life is hard enough when you're married. It's hard enough to raise kids when you've got a godly wife and a godly husband who agree on everything. It's hard enough to raise kids in this culture that way. If you marry an unsaved guy, or you have a baby with a, with a man that's not saved, or even a guy that's saved, but you have to try and raise that child on your own, that is a very, very, very difficult place to be. Of course, we have a culture that says, I've got the solution, just kill the baby. Is that a, is that a solution? No. So what are we supposed to do? What is the solution for this trouble when you get caught in this snare? Well, number one, trust God, not the professionals. Trust God, not the professionals. Do you see what happened? Verse 9. Now, when much time was spent, when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So here's what we have. We have a culture, and we're, le- we're heading towards a-, a political system that's called a technocracy. And that's where the, the engineers, the- they will, and I know that you engineers here would say that this is a good idea, but this is where the experts will control everything. So you've got Jimmy Kimmel on TV, who is giving doctors counsel on health care. He's a circus clown. His son had surgery, so now he's an expert on health care. Isn't that dumb? It's just dumb. And so you, you listen to these people who are just completely foolish, but here's the flip side of that. Well, let's go to the universities and the experts. Well, what if you have people that have bought into a system that hates God and hates God's plan? So we've got Dr. Ree here and Dr. Edwards. I would trust them on anything to do with health care. 
They're both brilliant in that area, right? But I wouldn't trust a lost doctor to give me godly counsel about something physical. Is that, you see what I'm saying there? It's really important that we see that. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to believe God and His Word and then find experts that agree with God and His Word. Amen? Now look, if I fell off a building and there was a, a Muslim doctor who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was a great doctor, go ahead and work on me, doc. I'm all yours. Right? We're not saying that you have to know Jesus Christ to be a good doctor. But when we're talking about getting information that will order the direction of your life, we need godly counsel. Are you following me? It's so important that we get this. So I want you to picture this. I'm a preacher. I get on the airplane. I'm flying to Connecticut today. I'm preaching to 700 teenagers tomorrow. Pray for me. So I'll get on an airplane. Imagine if I get on the airplane and the, the captain is there and his co-pilot is there. And I say, guys, the Lord's told me that I don't think we should fly. What are they going to do? They're going to throw me off the plane, right? Now, that's kind of the situation there. That's kind of the situation that took place. Isn't it? And yet they made the bad decision by not trusting the man of God. Now, here's the deal. I'm not an apostle. God doesn't speak to me directly. I'm not telling the pilot anything except get us up and get us down. Right? I've got no information for the pilot. I can't help him at all. But in your life, I promise you that we have better information than the psychiatrists, better information than a lost psychologist, better information than an education expert. We have better information than those experts. Why? Because we have the truth of the Word of God. Trust God, not the professionals. And then, can I give you an example of trusting God, not the professionals? You got, again, I talked to you about when I was young. How many of you remember Dr. Spock? Not this Spock, but Dr. Spock. How many of you remember that? And his whole thing about, you know, you shouldn't discipline your children. You shouldn't spank your children. And so we ended up with a whole group of people in prison. Right? You shouldn't have listened to him. And how many of you had a grandmother that was raised on the farm that knew more about child rearing than Dr. Spock? It's just... That's what I mean by trusting God, not the professionals. You have professionals with an agenda that opposes God. They're going to get you in trouble every time. You have simple trust and faith in the Word of God. Here's how you raise your kids. You ready? I'm in a marriage seminar, child-rearing seminar right here. Mom, love Dad. Dad, love Mom. Respect each other. Honor each other. Love the Lord agree about how to raise your kids. All right? First step. Second step. Children, obey your parents. And obedience is immediate with the right spirit. Parents, when they don't obey immediately with the right spirit, you punish them. They get a bad result for bad behavior and a good result for good behavior. Do you know what's going to happen? Pretty much you're going to have good, godly kids. 
please pay the cashier on your way out. <laughs> Man, there are so many people that could save so much trouble in their lives if they would teach their children to obey when they're young. You know, it's much easier to discipline a two-year-old than a 17-year-old. So, here, here's the deal. Trust God, not the professionals. That's number one. Number two, trust God even when it's uncomfortable. Look at verse 12. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart. It wasn't comfortable. Where they were wasn't comfortable. Do you know that just because you're not comfortable, that doesn't mean that God wants you to leave? Isn't that interesting? Trust God even when it is uncomfortable. And then, trust God, not the majority. You've got to learn the majority is always wrong. Look at what it says. And because the haven was not commodious, verse 12, to winter in, the more part advised to depart. But God had already told the apostle not to leave. Right? So, trust God more than the professionals. Trust God even when it's uncomfortable. Trust God, not the majority. And if you'll do that, if you'll trust God, man, let God be true. And how many men a liar? Every man a liar. If we'll do that, what God's going to do is He's going to help us make it through the storm. Amen? Man, you start to get that human wisdom. We're going to look at that next week. You start to get that human wisdom involved in it, you'll make bad decisions every time. Godly wisdom will take you safely home. Let's all stand together. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We're so thankful for all that you've done for us.